Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today our episode is on philosophical shock tactics. Oh, I'm shocked. By yes. what? what? What kind of tactics are <laughs> so, we talking about? So we're talking about philosophical arguments uh, that uh, lead to very shocking or absurd-seeming conclusions, um, usually that, that offend people or that offend our, our moral intuitions or our natural sensibilities. So uh, these are kind of a favorite of, of philosophers, um, and there's a bunch of examples we're going to touch on today. Uh, there are shocking philosophical arguments uh, to the effect that we should, that it's perfectly morally acceptable to kill young children, that uh, no one should have any children, that it's immoral to have children, that uh, we would all be better off if everyone were killed instantly uh, tomorrow, <laughs> that, uh, okay. yeah, uh, that bestiality is perfectly morally acceptable. The list goes on. So we're, we're going to talk about why these arguments are compelling to philosophers and to what extent our emotional and moral reactions to those arguments uh, indicate that there's something wrong with the arguments. And in fact, uh, as we'll, we'll talk about a little later, uh, the reality is that these arguments are acceptable or compelling to some philosophers and particularly to what are called analytical philosophers. That's what I mean when I say philosophers. Yeah, oh, I see. <laughs> well, that actually tends to be what I mean too, but we need not forget that um, there is a whole different tradition in modern philosophy called continental philosophy where things go in a different way. Arguments are not really the point. Certain logical arguments are not the point. Uh, so we'll talk about that too because that actually is... Um, the kind of argument of, of shocking tactics, as you as you put them, uh, that um, we're going to examine actually do highlight a major difference between continental and analytical philosophy. They also, I think, highlight um, something about what is the point of doing philosophy to begin with. Because mm -hmm. frankly, you know, if your conclusions were not shocking or surprising or you know novel in some way, then why bother doing what it is that you're thinking you're doing, right? Right. So if you, uh, if you encounter an argument that's counterintuitive and you say, well, I reject this argument because it's, it doesn't match my intuitions, which I had going into this situation, um, then, yeah, then philosophy can almost by definition never change your mind about anything yeah, um, I mean, because uh, you're some, committed to your earlier intuitions. Correct. Some, somebody has pointed out that um, uh, philosophy is, is like, or at least good philosophy, it's like telling good jokes. Um, you know, when you tell a joke, um, you you lead your listener into one direction. He thinks you know where you're going. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you turn, you take a sharp turn. That's the punchline, right? Mm -hmm. And it is funny because the person is not expecting that you're going there. <laughs> the idea is that similarly with good philosophical arguments, you, you build up something and you think, you know, your readers think that you're going in a particular direction, which is, you know, pretty charted territory. And then all of a sudden there is sort of a surprising conclusion or a surprising turn. That's what makes the argument interesting. Um, so we should give, we'll we should start out with a couple examples of Yes, bestiality first? Arguments. Yes, let's start with <laughs> let's bestiality. Let's go with bestiality. 
you may quote me on that. <laughs> yes. So what's the argument there? What's the, what's the problem with bestiality? Well, there are... Oh, what's the problem with bestiality? <laughs> no. Or the, argu- the, the argument is, is that there is no problem with bestiality. And Peter Singer is famous for making this point. He has a, a well-known article from, I think, a, uh, like a decade ago called Heavy Petting. Uh, and, I mean, the, the gist is Peter Singer is, is a utilitarian. And he argues that um, there are pretty reliable ways to tell whether... Uh, the animal that you are interested in having relations with is um, also interested in having relations with you, or at least doesn't care. Uh, and that if that is the case, uh, you know, reliably, uh, that you can expect reliably for that to be the case, then there's no moral problem with bestiality because um, right. it isn't causing harm to anyone. So, uh, and there are variations on this argument. I myself have been making the argument for years that the all of the standard condemnations of bestiality, all the standard reasons why people call it immoral would also, if you accepted those uh, those premises, they would also prohibit us from uh, eating animals or from, at the very least, from buying animal products that have been raised in sort of the modern factory farm method. Um, Correct. And in fact, the last time you made that argument on this podcast, yep. um, I mentioned that you just convinced me uh, that bestiality is, is fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I'm okay with either uh, either conclusion, just as long as people are internally consistent. So Correct. either you have to you know give up eating factory farmed animal products if you right. want to still maintain that bestiality is wrong because the animal can't consent or because it causes suffering to the animal right. or you have to accept that both are fine eating right. factory farm products but, but and so, bestiality so let, before we get back to the bestiality which i'm sure our listeners are um definitely um waiting as the, as the highlight of the of the episode but um so you just mentioned something that actually is going to be fundamental to this discussion which is coherence mm-hmm. yeah internal right? consistency yeah internal consistency so the idea is of course that a good argument ought to be coherent right that if you if you find inconsistencies or self-contradictions or internal things that don't work logically and so on and so forth then you got a bad argument now i think that pretty much every philosopher certainly every um, analytical philosopher would agree that that is the case however it is also true um, that coherence in and of itself is not sufficient right i mean you, you can have a completely coherent argument that is non- nonetheless wrong because for instance it starts with wrong premises right so if, if you, you can make an argument that, well, um, if bald men are immortal and, um, you know, Aristotle was, was, a, was a bald man, then Aristotle was immortal. Yeah, okay. That is actually a perfectly valid argument from a logical perspective, except that the premises, one of the premises is wrong. Sure. Actually, both yeah, may so, be wrong because I don't think Terry Stoddard was bald. But anyway. Right. So coherence <laughs> is not, or internal consistency is not sufficient for uh, true conclusions, but it is necessary for true conclusions. Right. I would think so. Now, I, I would say that that is actually one of the things that this differentiates science from philosophy, right? That is, in philosophy, it's actually interesting sometimes to, to pursue arguments in terms of coherence, regardless of whether the premises may or may not be true because in fact sometimes whether the premises are true is an empirical matter and mm-hmm. therefore it's up to science to decide right mm-hmm. so the philosopher could even do a thought experiment and say well if this premise were if they were, this were the case then it would follow then x z and y mm-hmm. in which case even a coherent argument that may be based on on incorrect premises or premises that might turn out to be incorrect in the end uh it's actually still interesting mm-hmm. for a philosopher on a, yeah. in a, in a science perspective, that's not the case. If yeah. you start out with wrong facts, then you're not going anywhere. That's that's also true of these ethical arguments, like the bestiality argument. Right. I'm just going to yank yank <laughs> us right back to bestiality. You thought you could escape, uh, so oh, no, no. <laughs> right. So so what I was saying was, I'm I'm not actually that concerned with what 
people actually conclude about how they feel about bestiality. Um, but what I find interesting and uh, and compelling about the argument is that it shows you what the dependencies are. So it shows you, you if you want to be internally consistent, you can either hold these two views or you can hold these two views, but you can't hold this other combination of views. That's right. um, so it just, like, I enjoy the process of mapping out the landscape of... Uh, of what combinations of views you could coherently hold. Right. And in, in fact, an argument can be made that that is pretty much all that philosophy is about, <laughs> is um, uh, exploring that, that sort of coherence landscape, if you will, uh, that you're talking about. I mean, we, we mentioned in the past something called um, 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 reflective equilibrium which is a, te- a standard technique in philosophy, uh, essentially being described uh, by a number of people, actually originated um, as a formal description in philosophy of science, but it's most famously associated with John Rawls mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and his ideas in political philosophy. But the idea of reflective equilibrium is exactly to engage in that, that um, exercise you're talking about, that is, all right, I hold to three, let's say, different propositions, and it turns out if I analyze... Uh, the internal consistency of the set of these three propositions, uh, it turns out that the set is incoherent. There is a problem somewhere. So that analysis then let, leads me, may lead me to question one or two or three or, or, or two or all of, them, all of them simultaneously. And what I do is why I adjust the way in which I value each proposition or the way I, in which I relate each, proposi- mm-hmm. each proposition until I come up with a better more coherent mm-hmm. uh, overall view. Yeah, and so you, uh, like in, in cases of ethical arguments, you don't actually uh, need to prove that certain ethical premises are the correct ones. Right. But you can show that, you know, if you have start with these premises, then, you know, consistency requirements force you to, uh, like, don't, don't allow you to hold these combinations of views. So, like, if you start out with the view that it's wrong to cause suffering to sentient beings um, unless... The, uh, the utility gains are substantial enough to make up for it, then you have to disallow some forms of bestiality and disallow a lot of forms of, of meat eating or, or animal product eating. Um, right. or, or you could start with the premise that uh, it's fine to cause suffering to sentient beings uh, if they're not human, and then bestiality is okay, and eating animal products that are factory farmed is okay. Um, right. So, yeah, it, you can just... Determine based on your inputs what combinations of outputs you can. You so, can the, hold. so, so the basic idea that we're we're exploring. By the way, um, this um, uh, this topic came out because there's there's a recent article that came out that we're going to link to the to the um, podcast site by Clive Hamilton, uh, who actually was critical of these tactics. He he asked the question of why is it that so many philosophers are shocked and horrified when they publish something and then they are criticized uh, harshly sometimes. Um, including threats of threats. violence. Oh, yeah, including mm-hmm. threats of violence. Uh, you know, they, 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 the point is um, uh, these philosophers write things that are obviously uh, very controversial, and then they're and, shocked. And seemingly, like, like, intentionally provocative, too. Right, which, by the way, I don't, I'm not sure that, that uh, the intentions necessarily are... Um, uh, is to provoke every time. I mean, Peter Singer has certainly made a career of making provocative statements um, for what he thinks are very good reasons. But mm-hmm. there are other examples that uh, of, of so-called philosophy shock t- tactics that I, I doubt actually originate from that um, from that uh, particular purpose. It's just that philosophers tend to be interesting in unusual situations mm-hmm. and in the. Uh, extreme consequences of uh, pursuing a certain line of uh, reasoning. Yeah, and I think there's also a pleasure 
that I certainly get, and I suspect a lot of other a lot of philosophers get too, a pleasure in in being forced to bite a bullet. Do you know what I mean? Like right. it's exactly. almost it's not just that it's interesting when the conclusion is unusual. It's 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 almost even more satisfying in a very like abstract intellectual cerebral way to to be forced by logic to starting out with reasonable premises to to accept an unpleasant or shocking conclusion. I think it's, it's might be satisfying because of the power of it's sort of a demonstration of the power of reasoning um, that, wow, it can force you to accept something this dramatic. So so let's talk briefly about another example, uh, which is so earlier this year, two philosophers, uh, in fact, two Italian philosophers, which is a sort of an unusual thing because I, I almost never get Mostly continental, right? Um, no, no, I don't. Well, I'm not sure to what tradition they would they would um, think of themselves belonging, but I, I, I actually f- tend to think that they think of themselves as analytical. Anyway, oh, okay. It, um, the point is, two two Italian philosophers published this article in a technical journal, by the way. Not this wasn't in the New York Times or you know the Guardian, but in a technical journal in which they essentially argued for uh, the uh, the fact that infanticide is is morally acceptable, or mm-hmm. what they call it actually after birth abortion. <laughs> Which is an interesting wow. euphemism. Way yes. to reframe. <laughs> yes. Now, um, so I actually read the article. I read some of the uh, responses and the criticism and all that. And this was a bouhaha for for a few weeks because, as it turns out, that when somehow uh, news of these very technical article in a you know, fairly you know. I, won't, I was going to say obscure. That's not true. The journal in which it was published is not obscure, but it's a technical journal, so it's not the kind of thing that normally people read. Uh, somehow that percolated uh, into the mainstream media, and all of a sudden there was this huge uh, deal about, oh, what are these people proposing and all that sort of stuff. First of all, the argument itself wasn't that new because people like Singer and others have already made the argument that infanticide is is permissible, at least under certain conditions. Although the conditions that are accepted by in, in, in the particular case we're talking about were actually broader than, uh, than any that I've heard of before. But the argument is essentially the same. Um, that is, you know, uh, if it is a permissible to, uh, to abort, so let's say, a fetus even late um, in, um, during the development when there is essentially already uh, the ability to perceive pain, to, to experience pain, uh, and that, is per- that could be permissible for a variety of reasons, um, including, you know, endangerment of the mother's life or something like that. Uh, then there are certainly circumstances under which even infanticide would be permissible. Uh, the obvious one that Peter Singer often brings up is um, if, the, if the infant is severely uh, developmentally abnormal, genetically abnormal, so that it would anyway have a very short and very painful life. For a utilitarian like Singer, it actually makes perfect sense to say, you know, this isn't going to do any, anyone any good. Uh, it's going to be painful for the for the uh, creature it's himself or herself, and as well as of course for people who care for for him or her. So there really is now no again no advantage from a time perspective in keeping the the um, infant alive. So now one can disagree <laughs> with the premise of the argument. One can disagree with you know uh, one can find the consequences disturbing and so on and so forth. But the the question, of course, Singer would ask is well, what exactly is wrong with the argument? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, now, it turns out that, of course, when these things percolate into the general public domain, there is often no counter-argument. What it is, is you, you hear a lot of emotional reactions. You hear a lot of, oh, but this is horrible. If you mm-hmm. start that way, then you're going to be end up in, you know, in Nazi concentration camps and whatever it is, a slippery slope kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Those are not arguments, right? So emotional reactions are not arguments. 
And the question one needs to raise is, well, so if they're not, then, then what place, if any, should an emotional reaction have in these kind of discussions? I actually happen to, to think that there is a place for it, but, but um, what do you think? Before we go out <laughs> that way, what's the relationship between uh, the, the question, I guess, is what's the relationship between a logical argument or coherence argument and an emotional reaction? So I think that emotional reactions by themselves don't uh, can't justifiably be used to rebut uh, logical arguments. Like you can't right. just say that upsets me, therefore it's wrong, uh, right. of course, but that emotional arguments can uh can hint at like the the problem is we often don't we don't have complete awareness of uh the reasons for our objection to or like resistance to some claim right. and so the emotional reaction can hint at some uh underlying reasons that might actually be good logical reasons to reject a conclusion right. um or they might not and so i think the key is to figure out the best of your abilities where your emotional reaction is coming from and based on that whether it actually provides evidence against the claim so for example um, someone might have uh, a visceral reaction against the idea that, uh, let's see. Okay, so some, uh, a utilitarian might make the argument that um, eating a dead body is perfectly morally acceptable because it doesn't harm right. anyone. Um, and you might have a visceral reaction against that. Uh, I think many people do have a visceral reaction that, no, that's immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, there are evolutionary reasons why we have a revulsion at the idea of eating a dead body. It would be incredibly harmful right. uh, to someone to eat a dead body. And so we uh, naturally evolved to feel revulsion at that idea. And our brains do seem to conflate uh, revulsion with moral revulsion or, or moral outrage. Yeah. Um, and so I think once you go through that process of recognizing the origins of your, uh, your ethical, like more, um, emotional objection, you can, uh, you can recognize that those don't actually pose a challenge to the logic of the utilitarian right. argument. Yeah. In fact, there is, there is research in recently in, in, uh, uh sociology and, uh, and, uh, cognitive sciences that connects, um, the parts of the brain that make it possible for us to have a sort of gut reaction, an emotional reaction uh, to physical things like being dirty, for mm-hmm. instance. Yeah, that uh, people were more likely to judge something to be immoral if they were in an unclean environment. Correct, yeah. yes. Um, or you, you respond more warmly to a person if you're holding a cup of coffee, right. a hot cup of coffee, and, and, and you're a little more, um, you know, less responsive to that person, the same person, if you're holding a, you know, ice cold, um, water, which uh-huh. by the way, it's a good hint for where and how to go, um, on a date uh-huh. <laughs> for or coffee, a job interview. Not, That's yes. right. Go, go for not coffee, for iced tea. <laughs> not for iced tea. Um, <laughs> but so it, it's well, known, it's beginning, it's beginning to be fairly well understood. The fact that there is in fact a neural connection between you know, it's the same pathways that we use for you know moral disgust are the ones that we essentially have co-opted from uh, from a earlier, uh, more uh, evolutionarily earlier mm-hmm. uh, response to things that we really ought to be disgusted uh, mm-hmm. from a physical perspective. Now, as you say, however, it's important to make that distinction, to be aware of it, and make that distinction. You know, the other typical example um, is uh, the possibility of incest, which is also. Mm-hmm. 
uh, fairly strong, there's a fairly strong revulsion to yeah. the idea. And uh, strongly selected against evolutionarily, that's right. right? And nonetheless, you can easily come up with, well... Right. Selected maybe, maybe for not. the revulsion, sorry. Yes, selected, selected for the Selected against revulsion. being okay with it. And you, but nonetheless, you can easily come up with scenarios under which incest would be perfectly acceptable, at least there is... From a utilitarian perspective. From a utilitarian yeah. perspective. So there is absolutely nothing that you can possibly object to if it is done be, be, between people who are consenting adults... Can't have children. Cannot have children, mm-hmm. who have, you know, perfectly mental, mentally stable and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And you can say, well, at that point, what is still object- objectionable about it? Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be anything, and yet the revulsion still stays. Yeah, and a lot of remains. people will say, well, I... You know, when, when presented with a scenario that's that's contrived to, to satisfy all of those premises, they'll say, well, I know it's wrong, but I, I don't know exactly why, you know. Right. And so that should be, right, so that situation ought to be a uh, alarm bell, right? It's like, okay, wait a minute, however, uh, how do you know that there's something wrong there if you cannot explain to me what, what the reason for, for the thing being wrong is to begin with? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is perfectly, it is possible that we have an intuition that something is not quite right and we cannot express or we cannot, we're, we're incapable and, and at the moment of actually analyzing the situation and figuring out what is wrong. But at the very least, uh, we ought to admit that that is, in fact, a problem. Mm-hmm. That is, that the fact that we have a certain intuition that we cannot actually explain logically is a problem. It's something you need to work out because right. it may indicate, as you were saying earlier, that there's something wrong with the argument, but it may also indicate that there's something wrong with the intuition. It's not that intuitions take precedence no matter what. In mm-hmm. fact, um, as intuitions uh, really should be you know, taken with a large grain of salt, uh, depending on what the domain of intuition is, of course, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But, but a lot of people seem to make these, these, uh, give these priority, again, to sort of an emotional reaction or an intuition. Uh, oh, I know it's wrong, therefore. Well, but the whole point of these exercises is to figure out why, mm-hmm. how do you know that it's wrong? What exactly is wrong about it? That's what makes the philosophical analysis interesting and, and valuable. Right. But, you know, the first uh, example you gave of, an, of, like, emotional reactions against the infanticide argument, that actually seems closer to a good reason to discount the infanticide argument that, that the, I mean, the slippery slope, that if we uh, broke down our natural... Like if we if we gradually got over our natural revulsion at killing babies, that the consequences for what we'd be willing to do, what we'd be okay with in society more broadly, could be grave. I mean, that, that that actually seems yeah, like a much more valid actually, argument than that, you gross. You know? Right. That could be. That's right. That could be an argument. Of course, the the problem with slippery slopes arguments is that they are slippery. <laughs> uh, they are. You know, it's 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 too easy to say. Well, you start here, and then you're necessarily going to go end up there. Uh, well, wait a minute. There is a lot of steps in between. I mean, after mm-hmm. all, we do kill all sorts of of, of um, beings, including human beings, for all sorts of reasons, yeah. and that doesn't seem to bother too many people. Mm-hmm. So the question then would be: Well, why is it that that particular kind of you know allowing that particular killing would generate this slippery, slippery slope, and others yeah. don't? Yeah, that's actually one of my other favorite things about these shock tactic arguments: that when you find yourself rejecting the the conclusion, it often forces you to go back and figure out what your actual uh, beliefs are. Right. So, like, so for example, one of the other shock tactic arguments is that it's by by our sort of standard ethical system, ethical intuitions, it's immoral to have children because we uh, we have sort of an asymmetric uh, approach to the ethics of causing pain versus causing benefit. That we. Um, 
we have a much stronger like ethical aversion to uh forcing pain on someone um, mm-hmm. than yeah. we do to benefiting them. So if, if most people would say that you, uh, you can't cause suffering to someone, even if that allows you to create benefit for them that outweighs the pain. Um, that's, so, that's just a standard. Like if you accept that premise, which many or most people do, right. then the argument goes, it's moral to have children because even if you think that your child will have a net positive life, basically all lives involve some pain and suffering. And by creating a child, you're, you're causing this, them to experience pain and suffering. Yeah, uh, I'm not so sure they found that particular argument uh, compelling. Um, but but again, then the question is, you hear the argument and you have to figure out what is exactly that you don't find compelling, right? Yeah, and you have to think about what uh, what are my views on like my willingness to cause pain and suffering in the world? Like what, what justifies that? Right. When is it okay and when is it not okay? Right. At the very least, what that argument would, what that situation uh, should do is to make people seriously question why they have children to begin with, right? I mean, it, it, too often in our society, it goes simply unquestioned, the, the premise goes simply unquestioned that having children is a good thing, period. Um, and, you know, well, why? Mm-hmm. Is it because it's natural? Well, there's that's a naturalistic fallacy. There's, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things that are natural and they're not necessarily good. And in fact, we build an entire civilization on doing things that are not natural. So, uh, so that argument clearly doesn't go anywhere. Um, one can make the argument that well, that's because that way that's the only way to have the species um, survive maybe, but then one could seriously question why is it that important to have the human Mm -hmm. species survive, considering particularly all the damage that human species has been doing both to itself and to the environment. So at the very least, that that way of thinking will make you say, well, pause and, and, and say, well, wait a minute, I'm taking certain things here for... Uh, for granted, I'm mm-hmm. taking the value of doing something for granted, but in fact, it's not that I really reflected uh, uh, on, on, on this thing. Um, so, again, the general idea is that there is value in, in reflection, there is value in, in um, thinking about the coherence and consistency of ideas. But the objection from which we started, um, for example, as I said, again, um, raised by Hamilton in, um, in his um, uh, article critical of the philosophy shock, shock tactics is that um, uh, the argument can be made that analytical philosophy <laughs> results into uh, what these author calls a kind of learned autism. I uh, love that phrase, <laughs> <laughs> learned right? autism. So the idea mm-hmm. is that, um, that look, uh, philosophy students, graduate students in particular, are sort of trained in, in eliminating any emotional component from their reasoning. Um, because emotion is seen as sort of uh, uh, problematic from the point of view of building a logical argument, and also because uh, one could make, could 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 say uh, because analytical philosophy simply, simply doesn't know how to handle emotion, right? Because since emotions are not ex- are not an argument, they are not ex- expressed in, in a mm. logical form. It's much more difficult to write a philosophical essay based on emotions. I don't even know what the, what would be the point of that. Well, what? most of the continental philosophy would well, be, there you is, go. provides you with a literature I mean, of that sort, um, right? I, so, so if you read, hmm. but but even even before the modern split with continental philosophy, for instance, if you read some of the classic philosophers, like let's say Rousseau. Uh, during the age of the Enlightenment, you know Rousseau was a was an outlier during the Enlightenment, precisely because he was making arguments that were much more emotional, and in fact, you know, rejected the whole idea of that reason could solve all all the problems and could uh, yeah. and would be the light and you know the guide and light to everything. That's, that's rhetoric. That's not philosophy. Well, 
Yes. I mean, it uh, may have been called philosophy back then. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that's a very philosophy. different thing than... Well, it's still called philosophy. I mean, well, you know, Rousseau's books are still considered philosophy. Yeah. But it's, it certainly is a philosophy of a different kind. Uh, and, and one could seriously raise the question of, you know, whether it is of a different enough kind that maybe it shouldn't be called philosophy um, mm-hmm. at all. But, but I'm not interested here necessarily in, uh, in, uh, in sort of a terminological dispute between, you know, what is and what is not philosophy. Sure. As much as um, into this idea that somehow emotions have to, the role of emotion has to find its way into the way we think about things. And yet that way... Uh, has to be balanced or is to be subordinate or is to be predominant over, over logic. So that's the question. It's Plato and, and a lot of the ancient philosophers obviously would have said, no way, emotions has to be subordinate to the, to the role of logic. There's, there's no, it's, emotions create problems. It doesn't, it doesn't solve them. Now, in modern times, perhaps the, you know, we might have a little more nuanced way of, about these things. After, after all, modern neurobiology does show that uh, a balanced human brain is a human brain that has a, a continuous feedback back and forth between sort of the emotional and the, and the logical cognitive functions. Uh, if you eliminate the emotional functions from, from a human brain or you suppress them, you get a sociopath, uh, well, which is not exactly probably what, what the way in which analytical philosophers would like to be considered. So I, I feel like you might be conflating two similar but distinct things there that Possibly. there's... <laughs> So there, there's the, the question of, do you need emotion to actually uh, act in the world? Right. Um, which, uh, uh, which is what I, the question that I think the neurobiology, uh, neuroscience findings are relevant to, that if people don't, aren't able to feel emotion or connect emotion to, right. um, to their like, conscious reasoning, they, can't, like, they don't know what they want or what they should do to, in the world because they, they don't feel any emotional uh, reactions when they simulate different potential outcomes. Right. So that's right. So one question is, do you need emotion to act in the world? And then the other question is, do you need emotion to reach conclusions about what is true? Which is, I thought, what the goal of analytical philosophy was. So there, it just seems yeah. less like it seems like something that that can be suggestive of of an area that you should uh, you should examine more closely. Um, as I was saying with like, you know, where did my emotional reaction come from, and what might that indicate about reasons for or against this this claim? Right. Um, but it doesn't seem like emotion is as necessary for reaching true conclusions well, there. Um, yeah, I see why you, you may think that there was a conflation of things there. I think that it's not a conflation, it's an intersection. Let me, let me see if I can um, reason this thing out as opposed <laughs> to appeal to my emotions. So, you know, if we were talking about a purely mathematical or purely logical problem, mm-hmm. then I would agree with you that, 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 that bringing up emotion is simply a conflation that doesn't help because presumably in order to solve, in order to solve I don't know, for math's last theorem, um, emotions really ought not to play any, any role whatsoever. It's just not, it's not, it, it's not clear at all what, what that would do other than getting in your way. However, if we're talking about the kind of philosophy that is actually relevant to human affairs, such as a lot of reasoning in moral philosophy, for instance, and in fact, it's not, it's not by chance that all the examples that we've discussed so far actually are from moral philosophy. They're not from metaphysics or from logic or, you know, they, they all concern human beings and what they ought or, or not to do, right? <laughs> so in those cases, um, let's say, just to invoke my usual uh, favorite philosopher David Hume, you might want actually to con- to consider both the emotional component and the and sort of the rational component, the cognitive component, because 
you are you are in fact talking about human affairs, which, which do involve emotions. Uh, if you take the emotional part entirely out, Hume would argue there is no particular reason for you for, for why you should be caring for X as opposed to Y. Why should you be caring? In his famous phrase, why should I care uh, about the destruction of the world or this, uh, more than the scratching Cut of my, my finger? finger right, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, well, you shouldn't, unless you have an emotional investment in the mm-hmm. destruction of the world. Uh, you really, there is no particular logical defense that you can well, mount. Although I think the destruction of the world would probably scratch up your finger pretty badly. So yeah, I think you should have chosen true. a different example there. Probably. But let's, let's give David um, a, a spaceship that he can get outside of the world <laughs> okay, just sure. before he's destroyed. And then, you know, the I will stands. agree to any statement that begins, let's give him a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> So again, so going back to then, therefore, to the to the uh, intermingling of, of emotion and reason, it seems like um, the critique that is raised uh, against these the, 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 what we're talking about, the philosophy um, shock tactics, does have some foundation. I don't think it has enough as much foundation as some people seem to, to think, but it does have some foundation. Meaning that, look, if you actually publish things that you know, articles, even technical articles that have to do with uh, the sphere of human um, emotions that, that have to do with, with human actions, with what with human beings. And that's not just, of course, ethical philosophy, but also you know, uh, uh, political philosophy, for instance. Then you might want to take into consideration the emotional reactions, both from your, your own and other people's, because at the very least, they will tell you that there might be a, you know, an alarm bell going on somewhere and say, look, if this conclusion actually, this conclusion may actually generate a pushback. And so you shouldn't be perhaps surprised that mm-hmm. there is a pushback. And perhaps you should even anticipate that pushback and say, look, I understand that this is, you know, this, this kind of conclusion is not going to be palatable uh, to many people, but, you know, let's figure out why or if there is actually a, a principled objection to, to the argument as opposed to yeah. an emotional one, right? I, I had, that was really difficult for me to, uh, to get to that point of being like strategic in the way that I phrased my, my philosophical points because it, I, I had this sort of resistance, like, well, I shouldn't have to add all of these unnecessary caveats. Like, the logic stands on its own, and and if people don't like the conclusion, then it's on them to explain to me where my logic has fallen short, and you know, to understand that I'm just I'm just presenting these like logical dependencies. I'm not you know endorsing infanticide or bestiality or all these any of these right. other things. But of course, that's not how most people who are not like used to the mode of philosophical discourse react. And and I did know that consciously. I just. I was there's this uh, this phenomenon I've heard called living in the should universe. Like you behave not based on how you know the world to actually be, but based on how you feel the world should be. Um, so you know that right. can manifest when you uh, uh, you like wear shorts, even though it's cold outside, because you feel like, well, it's it's June. It should be it should be warm, <laughs> right. um, which I have also done. <laughs> yes, I've but, done that uh, too. But yeah, I mean, and regretted it too. Yeah, um, my my brother wrote a great blog post recently, which got a lot of traction, called "How to Be a Communications Consequentialist," um, and <laughs> yes. he is a, a communications expert. He's he does communications for the Secular Student Alliance, um, and he he talked about like reaching that same realization that you have to just accept that people are going to you know miss your point either accidentally or intentionally, or you know going to read in things to your point that you didn't actually say. And if you want to be actually you know strategic, you should expect those things and account for them. Them, right. Even if it's not, you know, purely right. necessary for the logic. But see, that's inter- that's an interesting point because actually that goes back to your uh, sort of 
dismissive comment about rhetoric earlier, right? No, I wasn't. I wasn't dismissing rhetoric. I was well, just saying it's a mistake to call that philosophy. I just well, want a clear right. distinction made. Okay, uh, go okay. on. Okay, but even even if that was the the intention, I mean, the the point is that there is a difference between, as you just pointed out, between being right and being persuasive. Sure, right? totally. You could be fat. The two are completely independent, as far as I can tell. You could be <laughs> persuasive yeah. and be completely wrong about something, or you could be entirely right about something and be completely unpersuasive. I feel like they're, at, they're at maybe like a 75-degree angle. Yeah, perhaps they're not, not, not orthogonal. Totally orthogonal. Yeah, yeah, they're not totally orthogonal, but there certainly isn't that much of a strong cor- cor- correlation between the two. So, so the idea is, therefore, that when you're doing philosophy or when you're doing really pretty much anything that you want to communicate to other people, uh, you certainly want to be right. But you also need to be persuasive. Mm-hmm. That is, mean right is, I would say, necessary but not sufficient conclusion. Uh, if your if if your goal is to communicate your conclusions to other people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes not just in philosophy, uh, but also in science for that for that matter. I mean, scientists um, have this this uh, uh, immediate rejection of anything that smells like. Uh, rhetoric or, or like, you know, making an argument, a persuasive argument as opposed to just presenting the facts, right? But the facts don't spit, speak for themselves, for one thing. They need to be interpreted. They need to be presented. Mm-hmm. And, and you also have to get people who may, ha- may come, uh, may, may, may start reading your article, your book, from a very different perspective, with a different background, with different uh, assumptions, with different, uh, you know, sort of a priori commitments to a bunch of other things, you need to bring them around. The idea is you bring them around to your position. And again, it better your position better be right, but that's in and of its, itself not sufficient mm-hmm. to achieve your goal. So uh, that's why, for instance, recently I went to a conference on science education, uh, which was a very interesting thing at the uh, University of, um, of St. Louis in um, uh, Missouri in St. Louis. And uh, it was interesting because it was highly interdisciplinary. And there were obviously, as you might expect, science educators there. There were philosophers of science, particularly, and philosophers of language. But there were also rhetoricians. I mean, I actually had very uh, heard of two or three very nice talks from people who studied rhetoric. And, mm. you know, my initial reaction when I saw them on the program, I said, rhetoric, well, why? Doesn't that have a bad, bad connotation as in, you know, I'm going to, the sophist connotation, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, they, they were absolutely right that what you're doing every time, all the time you communicate with somebody is you are using certain rhetorical devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the difference isn't between using them and not using them. The difference is between using them well and not using them well or using them in the in the service of a, of a good cause as opposed to of the service of a not so good cause. Mm-hmm. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to conclude this section of the podcast with uh, a gripe. This is a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I'm going to take this opportunity to complain to to our captive audience. Um, so in... Whenever I get into these philosophical discussions where I, I'm trying to show, look, you know, if you, if you want to be consistent, like you, you either have to abandon your belief in X or you have to also accept this belief in Y, you know, the, you, you know the structure of, yes. of these arguments. And sometimes people will fall back on uh, the idea that they can contradict themselves, that, that inconsistency right. is perfectly acceptable. And I hear the, one of these two quotes. Uh, in in defense of inconsistency, one is from Walt Whitman. Yes, he says, "Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large; I contain multitudes." Correct. And that that is that is considered like an argument for why it's okay for people to hold two contradictory beliefs. And then the other one is from Emerson. 
Uh, and it's, it says, a foolish consistency is the hob- hobgoblin of little minds. Although usually people forget or leave out the word foolish, so they just say, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Yes. So it's like the argument to add poetry or something. <laughs> yeah. That's an important distinction. Yeah, the one by Whitman, I've actually used myself, but usually in jest. Right. And, you know, so the idea is, first of all, of course, he was a poet. So um, the, the, the idea is that um, there is a danger in wanting to be too consistent, I think, because you may be missing something about what it is that the inconsistency is pointing. So, so mm-hmm. you may, you know, it may be the case that there are that, that, that some of your beliefs are in fact currently inconsistent, but that doesn't mean that you ought to abandon one or the other. It may be that you're missing a third component there that would actually make sense of the two of them. Right mm-hmm. now, I don't know that whether that was what Whitman uh, meant. Probably not. Um, yeah. But so I would say that uh, yes, the foolish consistency is probably a bad idea. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but I think it is undeniable to, to any, any reasonable person and certainly any, any, any analytical philosopher that if, you, if your beliefs do include inconsistencies and incoherences, at the very least, they do point to a problem. Now, you may want to, for pragmatic reasons, you may want to ignore that problem. Uh, at mm-hmm. least for the time being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there may be other considerations. It may not be worth your time. It may not be worth your, your, your effort. Or you may not know how to go about so- resolving those inconsistencies and you just have to live with them. Um, but at the very least, we should agree that, that if there is an inconsistency, that's a problem. It's a problem you may afford to ignore or you may have to ignore, but it's still a problem. Thank you. Thank, All you. Right. Thank you for letting me vent. It's <laughs> nice, nice to end the episode on, on a shared gripe. Yep. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, uh, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book called What Intelligence Tests Miss by a psychologist at UToronto named Keith Stanovich, who's one of the founders of the field of of rationality, or studying human rationality and how it falls short from perfect rationality. Um, It's just a great, uh, accessible, well-written intro to what we mean by rationality, uh, like the ability and the inclination to reason deliberatively instead of coming to conclusions on, on instinct or just on emotion. Um, and he, he goes through, I mean, he's the one who originated this field of research, essentially, and he's pushing it forward. So he goes through the state of the research on how IQ, which is what people standardly typically mean by intelligence, um, is related to rationality, to the you know, ability and inclination to, to reason carefully. Um, and they're not that related, <laughs> Uh, interestingly. Um, so, uh, so the book's really interesting just, uh, just to explore that, that relationship or lack thereof. Um, but it also goes into some of the work on how, on like a taxonomy of human biases. And uh, it's kind of neat, like I'm used to thinking of biases as just a, a whole long list of things that our brain does wrong, all jumbled together uh, in, a, in a big bin. But they can actually be organized into um, violations of either probability theory or logic um, or rational choice theory. Uh, and it's kind of neat to see the, the classification of, of our biases. It makes, it makes the field of rationality uh, seem much more systematic. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. My pick is uh, something called Graphing the History of Philosophy. 
um, which is available on drunks and lampposts. Um, as uh, somebody did this really interesting exercise using uh, uh, essentially graph theory, uh, uh, a software that puts together um, that analyzes the links between oh, wow. different concepts and uh, or different, um, in this case, different thinkers actually, mm-hmm. to basically graph uh, all of the history of Western philosophy. And uh, the results are fascinating. Now, the data... You can see from my face, I'm looking at it right now. Yes. So, so the, cool. the data is based on Wikipedia entries, um, and the analysis is actually fairly complicated, although uh, the software to do it um, is freely available off the web. So if you follow the instructions laid out by the authors, you can reconstruct your own uh, graph in the same way, or you can use, do the same thing with, say, the history of you know, science or, or, or art or anything, anything else. And, of course, there's nothing uh, is stopping in, uh, somebody from doing the same thing with uh, other uh, sources of data. It's just that Wikipedia has a lot of these, these type of information. Basically, what you see in those diagrams there are these uh, large number of dots. Each one represents a philosopher. And the size of the dots is proportional to the impact that that philosopher has had through his connections with other philosophers throughout the history of the field. So is it just the more connections to other nodes or other philosophers, right. the bigger the node is? Right, right. Okay. And so you, you can see, for, for one thing, that there is uh, the graph, the, the major graph right there gives you the distinction between analytical and continental philosophy. Yeah, because you get cool. Aristotle and Plato and all that, and the empiricist on the one hand, and then you get Kant somewhere in the Middle, and then you get Hegel, Nietzsche, and Marx, and yeah, all the continental. Yeah, there's a whole big cluster of the continental right. philosophers, like uh, like Hegel and, and Kierkegaard. And then, and then what's what's neat is that Kant Kant is this big dot right right between the analytical right. cluster and the continental cluster. Right. Which is what an Eastern philosophy would tell you. Yeah, um, but that's it's just very neat nice to see it, it reflected. Right. Wow. And then you can zoom in and see you know, that, for instance, Aristotle actually was uh, even more important than Plato, even though famously wow. Plato's philosophy, you know, every, every, uh, philosophy is, is nothing but a footnote to Plato, allegedly. Uh, nonetheless, Aristotle was actually more influential. And then you can zoom in into the empiricists, for instance, and find out that David Hume uh, is obviously connected to law and John Stuart Mill, mm-hmm. but it's not very far from modern thinkers like Bertrand Russell and mm-hmm. Wittgenstein. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but then Wittgenstein actually connects into other directions that are beginning to be very far from Hume himself. For instance, Noam Chomsky. Wow. Um, oh, so I, it's, it's yeah. really interesting exercise, and it can be done with different data and, of course, about different topics, not just philosophy. It's, this it's, it's is a so really cool. good way of looking at um, I would, connections. I would wholeheartedly recommend this, not just to people who are interested in, in philosophy or the history of ideas, but also people who like cool infographics. Yes, because the absolutely. way that this data is, is displayed and the, the insights that it reveals are, are very cool and very elegant. All right, we are all out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>